Welcome to the Hell of a Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Josh Allen. I'm the chaplain here at the Georgia Tech Catholic Center. Uh, I'm Christopher Sharp, an alumni, and uh, I don't know what else to say. Oh, that's good. And I'm uh, Alex Tatum, uh, head of the apologetics program here at the Catholic Center. And this is our first podcast in a long time. We're very happy to have uh, Alex back and our first time with Chris on the podcast. And uh, Chris, uh, when I first came to Georgia Tech, was in charge of our uh, apologetics program here and has a number of really phenomenal presentations uh, that I've heard and seen. And he was very popular uh, while he was here. Lots and lots of people came to apologetics. Um, Now Alex is in charge and almost nobody comes. So we thought we'd have both of them together and mainly so that Alex can learn. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. So, uh, Chris, you want to tell us something about yourself? Something about myself. I am a convert. I was uh, drug kicking and screaming into the Catholic Church. I had to be convinced of every counter-argument before even considering it. Um, I, As Father Josh said, I head the apologetics program here. I'm very passionate about teaching Catholics their faith um, and, and helping them learn to tell the story of the faith, which is something I think we've completely lost over the last 50, probably over 150 years, really, um, not just today. But I work in the Atlanta area. I just had a baby boy. Um, his name is uh, Christopher Edmund Anthony. So we, we try to get three saints in there. Two's not enough. So we're not getting a lot of sleep right now, so I might ramble a couple of times during the podcast. Nice. So. Even nice. if you had sleep, you would still be rambling fair. on the podcast. That's fair. That's fair. So the topic for our podcast today is, I mean, I have a title. In fact, I, I sent it to Alex and Chris, and I said, I would like to do a podcast with this title. And here it is. Dragons Have Feet. Therefore, atheists are wrong. And I imagine as you're hearing this, unless you happen to have heard some presentation that one of these two guys have done before, you hear this and you think to yourself, okay, that's a pretty ridiculous sort of combination of ideas. But I sent it to them and they knew immediately what I wanted to talk about. So, Mm -hmm. and I, I picked up on this in a presentation. I've heard them both talk about it before, but I really noticed it in a presentation uh, that Alex did uh, at the Catholic Center maybe a couple of weeks ago. And so with that title in mind, I'm actually, I am not the expert in this field at all. So I'm going to be asking questions and uh, making comments and doing the kind of things that I always do. Uh, but I'm going to throw it over to you guys because my guess is you know exactly what I want to try to get to. So let's see what you got. I'd just like to say that I appreciate being the dragon expert here at the Catholic Center. I believe... Have you been on more I have podcasts been, other than yes, the Dragon Podcast? Yes, but I'm contractually obligated to be on all podcasts. Involving dragons. Involving dragons, dragons yes. Okay, yes. We do have another podcast you can search out there on the interwebs, uh, something along the lines of Our Dragons Our Real dragons and Other Real. Fantastical Catholic Legends. Yes. Which I did listen to again recently, and it is a pretty darn good podcast. It's <laughs> fantastic. Um, despite Anthony being on the podcast, it's despite still Despite Anthony being on yeah. Anthony, uh, we're very happy that you're doing well in seminary. <laughs> um, so, the idea Father Josh is trying to get, well, the idea Father Josh has brought up that usually is one of our first apologetics classes we do is trying to talk about. If we, as Catholics, do believe that we come from a single point, being Adam and Eve, you know, being, you know, Noah and his family after the flood, you know, these kind of things, that there's a, or with Adam and Eve, there's a central point that we come from, that all of, there has to be some shared origin among all the ancient races. 
Um, if we do believe that all the other races are at some point apostatizing and only the Israelites are staying faithful, that there still needs to be some sort of shared origin among them. Um, and though it sounds ridiculous to say, one of those shared origins is dragons. Every ancient civilization has a depiction of some giant lizard-like creature that resembles a dragon, and all of them have feet. Okay, before you get into this, because now we've already jumped right into dragons. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and like half the people just turned off the podcast. Right? <laughs> so what, what, objection, what objection are we going to answer? Like what is an objection that people claim against the Christian faith that this whole dragon discussion is going to answer? I think it answers multiple objections. Sure, um, but I'll, I'll take a step back from the dragons for a moment. That's Alex's really his, his forte. Um, it's not just dragons that are universal. Um, seven day weeks are nearly universal. Um, there's some rare exceptions to that. Uh, one being Rome that had eight day weeks. I would argue the eight day weeks were typologically significant um, for new creation and why Rome became the new Jerusalem, uh, for lack of a better term. There also is almost a universality of the flood of the deluge, right? I think there's 62 independent accounts outside of the Bible of the historicity of it. Not only that, they have dates to them. But now what, what yeah. do people say when, when, mm. when we say, well, wait a minute. Okay, so someone will say that, hey, so the Christians have this story of Noah and the flood, mm -hmm. but that's not an original story. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a story that you also read about in all these other cultures and this, that and the other. Right? I think. Correct. Correct. And I think that is the, the, the large bias at play there is that and I've actually had this conversation with someone before. The reason they use that as evidence against the Catholic Church or the Christian faith in general is they come in with the assumption that it's wrong, that it's a myth. But if they come in the assumption that they're willing to entertain that it might be true, then it, it turns it on its head a little bit and says, how would you expect a good God when everyone on earth except for a small tribe in the Middle East has apostatized from him? How would you expect a good God to plant the seeds to bring everybody back? And, and you would expect that to keep these, these universalities from this common origin alive enough in them so that they recognize their typological fulfillments when they arrive. Um, for example, the Romans, um, and this is not Chris talking, this is, well, it is Chris talking, it's Christopher Dawson, who was at Harvard, he was, a, he was a big scholar in the early 20th century, who talks about the significance that the Roman citizenship saw in the fact that Petrus and Paulus, you know, had, had been fed by this he lamb and coming in to found the new Rome by, with, their, with their martyrdom and blood when Rome was originally founded by Romulus and Remus, brothers who were fed by a she-wolf. And this, this almost mirroring of what had happened before and the typological significance of that was not lost on them. They, they saw that immediately. And you, and you I think, um, I forget what town he was in, but St. Paul, you know, going and pointing to, I can tell you who the unknown God is. And this altar of worship, you're worshiping God and you yeah. don't even realize it anymore. Yeah. Okay. So I think <clears throat> we're, we're, I, we're ahead. We want to make sure we go down to the very basic. I think what I'm... When I heard the, the dragon argument, and that's why I picked dragons, right? There are mm -hmm. lots of different things. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what we're trying to address, at least one of the things that I wanted to address, was the accusation that is leveled against the Christian faith or the Jewish faith or any faith, really, mm -hmm. that the, the stories that 
form the foundational understanding that we have of the human condition, where our origins, all this other kind of stuff, origin stories, right? Mm -hmm. That these, as you, uh, as Chris pointed out, um, are often dismissed as myths, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that our myths are no different than the myths that exist in other cultures. And so why would Christianity then be correct, right? It's like, why is it that we would say that the myths that form the foundation of the Jewish faith that then forms the foundation of the Christian faith, why, why are those any better than the myths that form the foundation of uh, whatever Chinese society or South American society or whatever? Uh, and I think the, the surprising conclusion that I, I will get to, um, but the surprising conclusion of the whole thing is that the fact that there are 60-something stories of a flood doesn't, um, not only does it not disprove Christianity, but in fact, it supports, it actually supports the Christian conception of the origin of human beings and the creation narrative, right? So that's the part that I think people are used to kind of hearing that. Well, wait a minute. So you've got a story of a guy who survived a flood, or you've got a story of, uh, you know, uh, human beings who were disobedient to some god, or, or maybe maybe there's similarities to the Tower of Babel, or I mean, yeah. I don't know. Um, but you've got these stories, where everybody else has got these stories too. But we ought not to be surprised by that, uh, which is which is an interesting thing. So, um, and then you also uh, have said this word typology a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, so we gotta maybe gotta talk about that, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, uh, try to get to where we can understand like how these things point us to a uh, a reaffirmation of the Christian faith. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Correct. I would say that it would be a, just to go back for a second, and I recognize the point you made about how this is, you know, how can we use it to support when it's usually used to take away? Um, I, I would argue that it's a, it would be a greater miracle for all of these deluge stories, like you had just said, to have developed independently without an actual deluge happening, right? That, 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 that for all these to develop from Mexico to China, and, and them to be, I think, within like 200 years of each other on their calendars of when it occurred is, is pretty remarkable. I um, mean, even as far reaching as like the Aborigines in Australia, who would have had no contact for thousands of years. But, but have a deluge I guess I guess the way to look at it would be is that if you look at history as a whole and if you look at history, and I'll, I'll get to typology in a second. But if you look at oftentimes and I see Catholics doing this, too, and it drives me nuts. You want to limit God's action to Scripture. While, while scripture might be God's biography, he's still, his providence is in control of history. You can look for signs of God in history. And the only, I'll use another word that might, we might have to go back, the hermeneutical key to understand history in a sane fashion is the Catholic explanation of it um, from start to finish. If you want to look at it holistically and then try to make sense of it and sanity out of it. Um, so I think it's a twofold answer is one, you have, a good God would plant these seeds to, to, to bring people back to him. And then once you apply everything the Catholic Church claims to these historical typological things, they all fit together in this beautiful puzzle um, that it won't fit otherwise. Uh, as far as typology, usually we see it in the Bible, right? We see you know Mary as a new Eve. We see all these different events. We see, uh, Peter actually calls the flood, the deluge, a type of baptism because you have... Again, eight people surviving, which is a huge, eight, the number eight is significant for new creation, which we can talk about. But oftentimes, and in prior centuries to this one, 
the faithful would not only look to um, you know biblical accounts for typology; they would also look to historical accounts in terms and of. So, when you say mm-hmm. typology, what you, what you mean is mm-hmm. um, an event that occurs that it's not exactly foreshadowing, but it 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 points to and can then be read as a kind of foreshadowing of an, a later event. Correct. So the example, um, uh, like the classic example that, that uh, we actually just talked about on this last Sunday was the flood mm-hmm. uh, for Noah being a prefigurement or a type mm-hmm. of baptism. Correct. Right, so because the flood comes and it washes away, in this case it washes away sinful human beings mm-hmm. or sinfulness, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. right? And then baptism washes away sinfulness. It's obviously not the same, mm-hmm. but it it sort of sets the stage for right. understanding right. what then comes later. I think a good explanation of typology is a very simple one. Is the Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, right? Yeah. The Word of God in stone in the old Ark, the Word of God in flesh in the new Ark. Right. You know, the eternal high priest versus the staff of the high priest. All I think that's a, that's a good like starting foundation to understand sure. what's prefiguring. Sure. So that's uh, so just just so that we understand what typology is. Okay. So um, so then you. Talking about this this idea of typology, typology not just in scripture but also in history. Correct. So that's I, what you were saying. And I can actually go into a, some very large tangential uh, notions of this that might be a different podcast altogether of showing you not only how God uses typology to show us patterns and recapitulation of how God brought about salvation with Mary's obedience compared to Eve's disobedience, right? Um, but how the enemy will actually ape this. And, and use an inverse recapitulation almost to, to bring about falls and things of this nature. Um, we can get into that if you want to. I don't know how the, the breadth of this podcast right now, but uh, I'll, I'll tease that for next time maybe. Okay. And who, hey, people might want to listen to a four-hour podcast. We might have time. It, it'll, it'll, take about 10 minutes to, it'll take about 10 minutes to flesh out, but it's a fascinating example of this, but I don't want to get too far off topic, even though in my head it's related. Okay, so then let, let's talk about um, – Let's talk about then these kind of common uh, origin sort of mm-hmm. narratives that have existed through other other cultures and this that and the other and mm-hmm. and how uh, and how we would link those uh, together, pointing to a, a real common origin like we would say in the in the scripture. Well, let's start let's start with the Christian example and okay. then see how that spreads. Okay, so obviously, um, just in pretty much the first eleven chapters of Genesis you have a huge amount of these shared traditions that we're going to see. May, starting with the Garden of Eden, you then you have so this first man and first woman. Um, you have a tree that, you know, this, the tree of life, and you have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have these varying trees. Um, and then you have this temptress, this tempter, um, which is portrayed as a serpent-like being with feet. Um, and so... I, I mean, I don't need to go through the the Bible story, but you know, Adam and Eve they fall from grace. All of this. In point Eden of fact, tree. does the does the uh, Old Testament identify the serpent as having feet? Yeah, because that's one of the punishments of the serpent. But he, it, it implies it. Yeah. It implies that he has feet because right. of the punishment is now you crawl in your belly. Yeah. So the implication is now he's lost. That his. he previously did not. Did not. Yes. And the earth, and the church paintings of it usually. Pre- Usually show him with feet. Does I think again. Scott Hahn has also gone on uh, rants about or one of the modern ones. Jeff Cavins or Scott Hahn has talked about how the actual word is he, he's an imposing, he's a towering, imposing figure, and actually kind of intimidates them in the garden a little bit, um, which is also an interesting take on it. So, 
Interesting. So you have this this dragon-like creature. And so then throughout, so then, like you said, you spread out and you see the ancient Greeks. You see the ancient... May I interject something real quick here? Sure. Um, you, then obviously you can expand on that. I just want to set this up to Father Josh's earlier point about how do we make this claim, right? So the claim the Catholic Church is making is, and it is backed up by a lot, uh, one of them is a implied claim that is actually backed up by Augustine and City of God, is that it's highly likely that after the deluge reset point, and again, we're not claiming a deluge that covered the earth in any way whatsoever. We're, we're, we are citing a deluge that, you know, you know, Peter says eight people were alive. I, I don't know how we could question that without going down a road of self-referential incoherence, but I don't want to go down on a tangent. So as far what we're claiming is, is up to the point of Babel, which has itself historical support, um, that almost every single person on earth was giving true worship to God after the flood. And after that breakup, and it's also interesting, I'm, I'm going to throw a lot of tidbits here because I think they're, they're, they're relevant, right? Um, you know, you, we are called Caucasians, the white racist, because it was believed that after battle, the descendants of Japheth uh, kind of gathered around the Caucasus Mountains. And if you look at the um, Proto-Indo-European language development, it actually starts around the Caucasus Mountains. So there are a lot of interesting things. that. So our claim is that after the deluge, that you had this common history of the deluge, and then everybody kind of split off and went their own way, uh, maybe 300, 400 years afterwards. I always forget how long it was between Babel and, and Noah's time. Um, it's also interesting, while we're getting on to that, Josephus cites 11 other major historians of antiquity that have probably, most of their work has since been destroyed that will contend that people used to live for centuries and that they used to live a very long time. So th- that's our claim. And then from there, if that is our claim, that there was a reset point around the deluge, that we should see these echoes in other cultures. Yeah. Or, or... So, with, so with dragons, um, you see ancient Greeks that have a depiction of a giant. Obviously, most famously, you see Chinese. I mean, obviously, people thinking that Chinese have dragons, that's not going to be shocking to most people. But they're large lizard-like creatures with feet. Um, the ancient Greek dragons look almost identical to what we would see as the Chinese dragons. Um, the Mayans and later the Aztecs had dragons. Um, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all those Middle Eastern cultures I mean, all had... The Aztecs even worshipped a winged serpent, did they not? Yeah, the Aztecs, uh, I won't say its name, but yes. yes. Um, their main god, pretty much that, I mean, the Spanish came in and were, I mean, that made it pretty much the child, the sac- human sacrifice was to was to a winged serpent god. Um and you see, interesting these... enough, again, tidbit. I'm sorry for going off tangent. Is that the Aztec ziggurat, the, the the what they would sacrifice people on, is what we understand virtually for the Tower of Babel to have looked like historically, and that's actually, and I, I can send a link out later about that. But that that's actually what we believe the Tower of Babel looked like. It's an interesting correlation. Um, but so you see, so you see this serpent, and what we're we're not saying that you know, we're not trying to claim that there were actual this mythical creature of a dragon of what we would think of it as a fire breathing monster that's, you know, terrorizing the countryside, but that clearly this is how the adversary chose to show himself to Adam and Eve and Genesis. So therefore it would make sense in common history. A, it would make sense for them to have that belief. And then this fear of, I mean, because in all of these cultures, dragons aren't 
I mean, even with even the Aztecs kind of perverting it, it's still like something we should fear and something we have to make sacrifices to, to keep at bay. Throughout cultures, this is a great being that is supposed to be feared. If that's not the great advers, if that's not a description of the great adversary, I don't know what is. Um, but it's not just dragons too. So these trees, we have prevalent this tree of life. Several of those are um, fruit bearing trees as well. Yeah, fruit bearing trees. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians have descriptions of these trees. Um, and really, really, the one even closest to it is the Mayans and the Aztecs had a tree of life that in their depictions even resembled a cross um, that, that the Mayans came out of and were able to spread. And obviously, if we do come from that one point, we should see this. We should see this all throughout. Um, if Babel is the great apostasy that, I mean, causes a great amount of people and 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 actually it probably would be good to talk about babel because most people hear the tower of babel and they think oh you know that's how languages got brought into the world and god got mad because we were building a high tower no that's not the case what you have is is people who were blatantly apostatizing from god and saying you know we don't we're I mean, pretty much doing what adam and eve are doing in the fall is saying we're not content just to be people of God, we want to be higher than God. We want to make a name for ourselves and build a high tower to rival God. And we see that, so the tower gets struck. I mean, God strikes down the tower. He didn't strike down the tower at that point. Alexander the Great is actually said anyway that I, don't, I want to be clear. He struck the people and sent them off into the winds. For those of you who don't know uh, Alex and Chris, they're they're brothers, so yes. they bicker a little bit. <laughs> Um, so, but we so we see this separation, this separation mm-hmm. happening at the Tower of Babel, um, because you had people who had blatantly chosen to apostasize. I mean, they they apostatize, and then it makes sense then that all these you know they they go off, they go into their different regions, and then you know the only people. I mean, literally, um, and the Israelites. There's only a few number of people still worshiping the true faith, and then I mean, realistically. Outside of God's call to Abraham, the only yeah, uh, the only finite person we have that is a true worshiper of God is Melchizedek. Who, who by the way, Aquinas claims is Shem. Well, I, I'd say Cath. I mean, as Catholic tradition, you know, Shem, the the blessed son of Noah. Yeah, blessed son of Noah becomes Melchizedek. Um, so I, it would make sense then if that's what Babel is, this great apostasy. That I mean, God pretty much like has to bring Abraham forth. And then it's only one of the no- the sons of Noah that is continuing this faith alive. That would make sense then for these other countries, for these other civilizations to have these traditions. That I mean, you can't take. I mean, you can't have Asian culture and not have dragons in it. I mean, to remove that, you can't. It's just to also then see that prevalent throughout the other cultures. I would, I would also add, as we've gone this number eight a lot of times, um, the, the Hindu account of a deluge is also very interesting uh you know you have manu who's the first man who's the king of the earth who shares the boat with uh seven other people there's eight people on the boat with him uh total including himself total um and i i, I get what you said at the beginning i want to go back to it about how do we say this as a as a you know um a defense instead of an attack on the faith i think it all has to be viewed through the historicity of the resurrection and if you look at the historicity of the resurrection as a singular religious event, unlike any other event in the history of the earth, then it is the key to kind of putting this rest of this puzzle together. And if you come in 
not willing to recognize the historicity and the truth of the resurrection, it makes the rest of this difficult. But if you're willing to um, be fair-minded about it, and I, I think I've, there's been multiple people through history who try to, you know, salt out to disprove it, but all the evidence um, backs up. You know, why would people lie about something they were getting stoned to death when they could have just told the truth? See, I actually think, I think one of the interesting things about uh, this sort of idea of, of dragons in the flood and mm -hmm. uh, this other thing is I, I'm not sure that it does require um, believing in the um, the historicity of the of the resurrection. I think the the benefit of it is that essentially what we're saying, right? Essentially what well what the Christian account would be is if 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 I had to faithfully um, try to explain how I think human beings endowed with um, uh, intellect and will uh, made in the image and likeness of God ended up in South America. Mm -hmm. Right. If I had to s explain how that happened, then I would say somehow, somewhere, descendants of Adam and Eve, which which is also would flow through Noah and his descendants, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That they somehow, somewhere, spread out through the world, whether that was by boat or by mm -hmm. walking over that bridge in mm -hmm. Alaska and Russia, mm -hmm. whatever, wh whatever that was, like however it all happened, but it spread out from that point. So that that's the interesting thing is that if all of these different cultures share the story that involves an element of a tree, it involves uh, a serpent, it involves uh, a tempter or a, an enemy of some mm -hmm. sort, um, it involves a flood, uh, these kind of things. And, and I don't know how, how prevalent the Tower of Babel is, but mm -hmm. it would make sense that that one wouldn't be as prevalent, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Because um, people start spreading out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what? I think that the fact that so many of those cultures have that is a kind of reinforcement of the idea that these events happened mm -hmm. to particular people in a particular place. And then those stories are passed down from generation to generation, which is why the fa it's fascinating that dragons exist in all these different cultures. And everywhere we've got art of them, they all have feet. It's like that's such a strange detail. Mm hmm it's such a strange and bizarre detail that every time you draw a dragon, that it's going to have feet, right? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I would also add to what you were saying, that as far as arbitrary details, the seven-day week is extremely arbitrary. Yeah. It's extremely arbitrary. And for it to have been so universal, for everybody to just have settled on that. Um, during the time of the French Revolution, everyone here probably knows this, but they, they tried to change the num number of days of the week to 10 days. I didn't know that. Because the liturgical nature of the seven-day week. They tried to change the name of the months, and they tried to... Um, Kind of shifts to a ten day, ten day week because they recognize the inherent liturgical rhythm of a seven day week. Um, so that is an extremely arbitrary time setting, and for all of these cultures to have settled upon it is rather remarkable. What what I, what I was saying, going back to the, I I, I want to rephrase the comment about the about the historicity of the resurrection. I, I, I when discussing something, when someone comes up to you and says, "Well, how do we know the Hindu account? You know, with their eight people on the boat isn't true, mm -hmm. and your, your account is true when they're having all." The, that's where I kind of go back to well, the Hindu account doesn't have, you know, the, the, the historicity of the resurrection, which is a singular historical event. I, I don't think it's necessary, but I think it is a, I, I don't want to call it a key, but it's, it's definitely a, a magnifying glass that helps bring this all together. And I would say also, in terms of Babel, while they're not common stories, the architectural similarities between the Aztec temples and the ziggurat at Babel is rather remarkable um, and, and shocking 
how that would why why they would they make that structure like that because the Aztec temples that everyone knows who's familiar with it is not like other temples you have seen when you've looked around right what well, also is just because a lot of this is because a lot of this is um, that it's sad that we're not educating people properly because realistically one of the greatest examples of this most of us read in high school the Epic of Gilgamesh if you took any sort of world literature and I know I read it in high school um, you know, my guess is there's four people listening to this that read Gilgamesh. Probably so. That's sad. Um, but you have this. You read that right after Captain Underpants, though. It was Captain right. Underpants. It was Captain Underpants. Stop. It was Harry Potter's. Let me. Let me. I did not choose to read it. It was. It was part of it our curriculum. You. You it didn't was choose Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh <laughs> chose you. It was part of our curriculum to read Gilgamesh, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is, I think, it's the oldest literary piece we have outside of you know obviously the obvious writings of the bible um but it's the, one of the oldest literary pieces we have that is an epic of the um assyrian babylonian shared tradition that has i think it's 26 shared points with the old testament including the deluge um and then gilgamesh is actually this like heroic tragic figure it actually talks about him visiting a friend in like this afterlife which greatly resembles um abraham's what abraham's bosom would have been to the to the old jewish um i i think there's even parts about like getting into purgatory and stuff like that but just amazing just you have this literature that at least i read in school apparently that might have not been the norm but that if anybody actually read that and said, oh, my gosh, you know, this is very similar to the Bible, and it's just something that, you know, people just dismiss out of hand. The, the, um, one of the, the things that happened with that, though, a lot of modern biblical scholars, including well-renowned Catholic biblical scholars, will take those similarities. And I think there's even like a dove involved in the Gilgamesh flood account, deluge account, um, and other remarkable similarities. Is They'll take that and think, oh, well, then the first five books of the Bible were written during the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites. Um, I would challenge that on a few points. One, Jesus implies the authorship of Moses within... um, Well, they would say that Genesis was written during the Babylonian captivity. Well, again, Jesus uh, does uh, definitely uh, imply the authorship of Moses. And I'm not not getting into this, but I just wanted to know that there's another side of this. A lot of modern scholarship rejects it. You read a lot of church fathers who had access to more materials than we do. And we can get and how his, his, the historical critical method ties into what we're talking about. But they had access to a lot more materials than we do, and they almost universally attest the Moses authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, so there, there's a lot of things there. But when they, you get into that Babylonian similarity, that's where a lot of people go down this road. Well, um, that's because the first five books are written during the Babylonian captivity. I just want to put that on people's radar so they know that that objection is out there. Um, so that, that it would have been a concurrent story developing if that was the case, right? Um, so, sorry. Okay. It's a good read. You should read it sometime. Gilgamesh? The or Captain Gilgamesh. It doesn't, it doesn't sound to me like it would be a very interesting read. <laughs> That's it's, like uh, the, the last time I, well, so uh, maybe a year and a half ago, a friend of mine, um, Deal Hudson, published, or he didn't publish, but he, he wrote a, a, a post on a new translation of Homer's Iliad that had come out. And I thought to myself, the last time I tried to read the Iliad was when I was in like middle school and we were forced to, which is a very unique and inappropriate torture for uh, for mm. kids. I mean, you want to talk about like turning them off to classic literature, make <laughs> them read Homer in middle school. Right. So 
I'm trying to read the Iliad. So I so then I get this new version and I'm like, okay, now I'm an adult. I mean, I was probably 38 or so. And I'm like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read the Iliad and I'm going to love it this time because, you know, now I'm an adult. No, I still hated it. Better, better translation, I guess. But it's like just painful. Now, the Odyssey, I really like. But the Iliad is just really hard to read. I, I, yeah, I think I think the, the forcing should be on the Odyssey, yeah, not on the Gil- Iliad. Gilgamesh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm going to pick it up. I'm just. I'm going to throw you. a t- quick tidbit on the Iliad. Is it, what, Alex, I'll defer to you on this one. King Agamemnon is he from the Iliad or the Odyssey? Iliad. Uh, well, yeah, because he's dead by the Odyssey. Yeah. He's dead by the Odyssey. He's yeah. dead by. He's the, in the Iliad. He, it's interesting. The the uh, word, the Greek word that was used for his rule, for his like ruling of, and he was the greatest known king of the time for the Greeks, especially, is the word that John uses in his gospel when Christ is saying, "Tend my sheep," and he uh, supposedly used it intentionally, according to some commentators, um, to you know stress the fact to the Greeks that this is not just we're using, you know, he's ruling the sheep, and the Bible translates it to tend in that place, but in another place it is it is translated as rule. So hmm. it's an interesting connection between uh, the Greek of the Bible and the sorry interesting so what about this objection what about somebody who says well the reason why there's dragons in china and dragons in uh, palestine or whatever is Mm -hmm. um and i don't know which ones would be older from an artistic standpoint Mm -hmm. but let's assume for a second just we'll just assume Mm -hmm. the ones in china are older Mm -hmm. right so what about the person that says, well, the reason why uh, you find dragons in Syria in art or whatever is because, you know, Chinese, they went to visit the Chinese and Syrian people. I guess they, they met somehow, probably not by email, but uh, <laughs> they somehow met. And so then and then what ends up happening is the traditions are passed from group to group, but it's still just one tradition that is then sort of spread out by communication and people then just become fascinated. Almost like an echo chamber tradition as opposed to a source. But but a dragon's a fascinating thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, so now I hear this story about this dragon, and so now I'm going to pass on the story of the dragon. And then, you know, they all seem kind of similar because I'm hearing this story, but not because those stories were original to that that, uh, culture. So what do you think about that? Alex? Chris? That's a. I think that's a. That's a fairly long answer, Father. I think we can. Um, let's break that down for a second. Okay. So what we have in the situation is someone, let's say, from Syria going into China, seeing a picture of a dragon, loving it, and coming back. I think the problem we have when we look back at history, right? We don't know what the most ancient depictions of dragons are because we don't know what was destroyed. Is one is one of many ways I would I would discuss that with somebody. Um, we, we, it's very hard to backdate history like that, right? Or who came first with, with different traditions. Um, I would also point out that I don't know of any. I would like for them then to challenge them. I would then challenge them after making that point. I would challenge them to say, explain to me the concord between the Mexicans and the Chinese. Yeah. And, and how, how is that happening? How, how, what, what kind of intercourse were they having f- from trade? Um, and, 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 you know, and the Celtic dragons, right? And like, you know, or, how are the Celts getting over to, to China in any type of trade environment or even with the Syrians? Um, th- those are the kind of the two routes I'd go with it. But I do want to stress this point because um, it is a pet peeve of mine and it is, I think, related to what we're talking about is that the great centers of learning were burnt to the ground. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I will defend the Vulgate versus modern translations is we know Jerome had access to manuscripts that are no longer existent. And to, to, to 
we seemingly like kind of collectively have amnesia about those things that Alexandria was burned to the ground with the greatest library in the world. Rome was burnt down twice. Multiple, multiple yeah. times. Uh, Jerusalem was burnt down to the ground. Everything that was a temple was destroyed. You know, so if someone finds an older dragon depiction in, in let's say, in Beijing than that has been found in Jerusalem to this point, I would say so what to that? Um, well, because, this, they yeah. might. They might. They. I mean, there is an ancient statue in Tibet that is this jade um, statue that depicts a tree, um, a, fee, a feminine hand holding a fruit. And reaching then towards the fruit. Reaching towards with the a, fruit. With a dangerous knife holding over it to show danger when she's reaching and for it. At the bo- and at the bottom of the tree is a serpent with feet. So I would say, okay, yeah, sure, point to that. And then, you know, tell me what that, I mean, tell me what that is. Because that is that is literally all three of those traditions in, one, in a statue that I think is like at least 2,500 years old. 2,500 B.C. From 2,500 B.C. that's in... I mean, in just the middle of Tibet, in the middle of the Tibetan plateau in China, that I, it perfectly mirrors the uh, perfectly mirrors the creation story. So some people would say that that that's evidence that mm. that story that the story that the Christians tell is or the Jews tell is not original. Mm. But it seems like, in order to believe that the story that the Tibetans are telling is not the same story that the Bible is telling, in order to believe that, I have to believe that somehow, spontaneously, um, such a very strange combination of, I mean, a, a, a trait with fruit is not a strange combination, but with a woman's hand taking the fruit, there's some sort of danger indicated and there's a serpent involved. Yeah. I mean, to believe that, I have to, I have to put together a whole lot of coincidences in yeah. order to believe that, mm-hmm. number one. And then number two... I would then have to posit that there was some sort of communication in a meaningful way 5,000 or so years ago between um, Jews and Tibetans or whatever, yeah. you know, uh, which at least to our knowledge, there wasn't, Correct. right? Yeah, correct. Um, so it seems like there's more holes in the sort of atheist theory in that regard Mm-hmm. than there is in the Christian theory. And not that there's not holes in the Christian theory, mm-hmm. but there's holes in all of history. There mm-hmm. are there are gaps that we're not going to be able to fill in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like you said, we, we don't have a lot of the uh, the ancient scholarship that existed. A good, a good uh, To get to that point too, and one of my favorite studies is like Roman England, right? We have this interest where the legends around England come after the history of England, where you have the situation where you know, we have all this known history of the Roman times. And then after Rome collapses, it, it passes into the era of legend before it comes back into a known history. So you have all these Arthurian legends that are remarkably backed up, by the way, as well, in other places. Um, and we, we have the tomb of King Arthur. We can get, yeah. into, we can get into that at another date. Yeah. But as far as that, it's just this interesting concept, and it's a really kind of this palpable example of this, you know, descent into unlearnedness, where we have this very clear history of England up to a certain point in history, and then there's like a 400-year gap, and that's like kind of the era of legends you read about of the Grell and Arthur and all these things, and then we kind of come back to history once once the, once civilization is recovered. But it's it's an interesting, I think, kind of just way to look at it to show that how dependent we are on records that may or may not be in existence. So I think. Um... I think I think we've tried to I think we've probably made the point that I that I was trying to make and that is that um, 
one of a, a, a pretty good sort of uh, uh, apologetic for the uh, the originality and the expl- the explanatory value of uh, the Jewish and Christian conception of creation um, is is made by the fact that we find art and traditions that are very similar. Um, and again, that's something that I think if people have encountered these kind of arguments, they've heard them as an attack mm-hmm. on Christianity. But in reality, that, that it's a real support. It's a real support for um, the, the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, account of creation and the fall and, and all the things that happen in the first uh, uh, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. I think um, I want to ask you guys just uh, as we kind of close up this podcast, um, if you are going to give people a recommendation for how to approach the Bible, how to approach Christian history just in general, um, I think Christians today have a kind of mix of um, a real lack of knowledge some embarrassment and some shame about Catholic history. And that's kind of like the entire basis of how we approach Catholic history. It's like, well, yeah, the kind of, the whole creation story, that's that's a little, you know, we don't really kind of buy into that. And no, the whole seven days thing. And yeah, evolution's okay. And just trying to try to explain away. And, and many of those things are fine, right? Mm. But just trying to explain away this stuff. And then we get caught up in... Uh, and attacks on Catholic history, uh, crusades and inquisition and stuff like that. It's one of the common things, especially this time of the year, as RCIA candidates are getting closer to Easter. You know, we start hearing these kind of questions like, well, yeah, but what about the crusades? And I always turn right back around and ask them, like, well, what about the crusades? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what do you know about the crusades? And they're like, well, I don't know anything. Right. Yeah. So it's like, oh, wait a minute. So you're about to give me an objection you don't know anything about. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. But but we have this kind of approach that is a mix between sort of like lack of knowledge and embarrassment and shame about how we've explained things in the past or how we've acted. And I just thought it would be interesting to finish sort of this podcast with your thoughts on how somebody should approach. What what I would say is, so the church very dogmatically has the things you have to believe from Genesis and the things you can question. Um, and I think there's like there's five things that have to be believed. Um, proto-parents. Yeah. Uh, along that there was a fall they were tempted the punishments that came along that a savior was promised um but here's what i would say to all that taking that aside is whether or not you want you choose to believe this or not this is how god decided to present our creation to him if we truly believe that the bible is the inspired work of god this story is how god chose for us to know about creation and I think just that fact alone should hold its merits that we should, especially because that's the thing, like we have that, which on its own should be enough. On its own should be enough more than anything. But then on top of that, we see these shared traditions throughout all of history. And I think it's one thing for non-Catholics, it's one thing for atheists, for you know, polytheists, whatever, for other religions to think that. But for Christians, especially Catholics, to just be ashamed of your faith when if we think, you know, if we believe in God, I'll, I'll take this away from Chris because I know he's going to say this in a second, but history is his story. 
everything that was done in history was done because God has allowed it. I mean, God has allowed it to happen. And the Bible, the, those Old Testament stories, is how God chose to share the creation story with us. Whether it varied, whether days weren't, you know, days weren't really days in what we believe them, whether it is the Big Bang that happened everything, whether evolution could even happen, that's how God chose to share that story. I would add to that and kind of say, I think, I think most Catholics today have almost, and I've seen this from prelates too, have almost become, I want to say, quasi-Lutherans from a solo scriptura standpoint about not wanting to try to find God's story in history anymore and where we solely try to find it in the Bible. And again, I would, I would contend that that's his biography, but we can also see the inspired work of God throughout all of history. And to study history with that kind of paradigm, I don't like the word paradigm, but just kind of that lens over your um, eye to try to look at history and seeing God's providence, that God might allow bad things to happen for a greater good to come out of them, but that everything that has happened in history has been to God's design. Um, we can get into the philosophical ramifications of that comment at another podcast uh, and just look to God's providence and, and, and understand him and, and be able to compellingly tell the story of the faith, which is the most compelling story ever told if it's told properly, both through an understanding of the Bible and a study of the Bible, but through also an understanding of history. I would point people to the likes of Hilaire Belloc or Chesterton or, you know, these, or Knox or these great 20th century writers, right? that really, I think, had this beautiful way of connecting dots of how, in showing, you know, there was a reason the Romans defeated the Carthaginians who descended from the Phoenicians, who descended from the Canaanites, who Joshua destroyed when he went to the Promised Land. I know I said a lot there, but there's a reason these things happened. And uh, and, and just recognize that is what I would encourage people to do when, when and study history. And I think, uh, I think I'd add to that, it is a mistake and a terrible, terrible example of intellectual dishonesty for us to dismiss as infantile or uninformed or unintelligent um, those people who wrote and studied uh, prior to our current era. Mm-hmm. And that is a very popular thing today, mm-hmm. not, just in, not just in religious studies, mm-hmm. but in many, many different areas, is to just dismiss... Mm-hmm. What people said uh, two, even 200 years ago mm-hmm. or the ideas they had 200 years ago because they're not as enlightened as we are today. Um, there's a lot of hubris in that. Um, and, and, and what we're basically doing when we say that is we're inviting people to dismiss what we say. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. in, in 200 years that they can dismiss what we're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is uh, Jerome was not an idiot. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jerome yeah. wasn't an idiot. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, he had access to things that we don't have access to anymore because yeah. they no longer exist. And that we know we don't have access to. Right. And, and, he, and the man dated, dedicated f- like 40, 60 years of his life. Like this was his goal was doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing. You have all these great saints who literally like in their bio, it talks about them being the greatest mind of their generation. Um, St. Heliopotes, uh, St. Isidore of Seville. Um, obviously, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you have these people who were just massive intellects that had all this all this ancient knowledge that we don't have anymore. Because literally, every single major historical collection has been burned down at some point. So it's, I think, uh, an important thing. One of the things that I've kind of learned through life is that it turns out a lot of the explanations of things that I've heard might be oversimplifications um, or they may have a political element to them that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
So as you as you kind of go past and you start to really study history and try to look at it with a, a, a cleaner eye, um, it's interesting when we start not just dismissing people because we don't like what they said. Um, and we start trying to assume that the people who are writing this down, they're actually trying to communicate something to me. They're mm-hmm. not trying to mislead me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of times that's what we do is we approach this, uh, the, the, the early stories of the Bible or any other of those kind of uh, texts that are supposed to be origin stories, right, mm-hmm. as uh, nothing but a, a kind of quaint myth. But the fact is the author is trying to actually teach me something. Um, and, and I ought to be open to that. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not, it's, it's, it's a real kind of intellectual dishonesty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dismiss anybody I disagree with, mm-hmm. and I'm not really going to be open to the fact that these uh, silly, uh, silly uh, incoherent and childish people from the past could possibly teach me anything in my greatly enlightened age. You know, so um, at any rate, guys, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast, uh, and we're happy to be back. Uh, first podcast in quite a while, I think. Uh, and hopefully we'll have a whole, mu- whole bunch more for you. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at gtcatholic.org. Uh, and if you have any topics you'd like to, us to cover, any questions, uh, please send those in. And thank you very much, and God bless. Amen.